Welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I am Elder Tony Acampa, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. Well, if you're thinking I'm going to get through all of chapter four, you're kidding yourselves. There is a ton of content, which means we're going to hit the main, and then we're going to try to move forward the best that we can. But in John 4, if you were there, it reads this way, starting. Now, when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And if we pause there, it's picking up from what ended chapter 3. So I want to go back to go forward. And in chapter 3, you saw Jesus interacting with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was the teacher, as he was known. He was one of the religious elite, meaning he was part of the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling powers in Jerusalem, but it also controlled all of the Jews internationally. So all through the Roman Empire, these 70 individuals in the Sanhedrin made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of had carte blanche. They were the supreme court of the Jewish law code of if there was disagreements, they would make the decision and their word was final. Nicodemus was the teacher of them. And when he spoke, people listened. And we saw that interaction as he came to Jesus by night. And I think it was less about not being seen to more about, I want a conversation with you and I want to interact with you. And who are you? All the signs point that you're with God, that you're a good teacher, that you're a prophet. Who are you? And Jesus pretty much says, I'm him. I'm the Messiah, and everyone must be born again. Why? Because you need new life. And Nicodemus and the Jews at that point didn't think they needed new birth, didn't think they needed baptism, didn't think they needed to do that because they were already in. And Jesus cut to the chase and said, no, everybody. This is going to be available to everyone. And he says, why for God so loved the world in John 3, 16, that he gave his only son that whoever believes should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And after this conversation, Jesus and his disciples kind of go outside the city into the Judean wilderness area. And if you're in Israel, if you're at Jerusalem, it's a higher elevation. So outside the city, it goes into kind of a just desert kind of area, which is where John the Baptist was as well. And so you have John and his disciples baptizing everyone. And so it's the Jews who are good, faithful Jewish people who are trying to do what's right. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to lay a foundation. And as he's baptizing, Jesus and his disciples start baptizing. Outside, Jesus isn't, but his disciples are. And the crowds start to gather, not around John anymore, but there's bigger crowds with Jesus and his disciples. And there's this turf war that kind of ensues because we're human and we, you know, we like our popularity, we like our power. And John's disciples go to John and say, you know, we used to have this gig. This was what we did. It's not what they did. It's what we did. Now they're doing what we did. Aren't we going to go do something? Can you go talk to them, tell them, move on, go somewhere else, do something different? And John's point is what we kind of have to get in our heads today before we get into John 4, because Jesus models to us brilliantly. John replies to his disciples in John, 27, in John 3, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. 
You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John's given his disciples the business. He goes, you want me to make a deal out of this? You want me to go, go throw shade over at Jesus and his disciples? And he's saying, now, wait a minute. A person can't receive anything unless it's been given to heaven. You yourselves, I witnessed, I told you, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I pointed to Jesus. I reflected him. And the Apostle John, who's writing this, is once again reinforcing the fact that John the Baptist is the precursor. He is the ambassador. He's preparing the way. He goes, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So now he goes to analogies and metaphors. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. At that day and age, when you had a wedding, the best man, you did a little more than just throw a bachelor party, okay? You actually took care of things. Yeah, you threw the party. You also prepped the wedding venue. You prepped everything to make sure everything was set and ready. And the whole day, you got no credit. It was all about the bride and groom. But all of that prep work, all of the stuff, you knew why you did it. It was in preparation for the groom, for the bridegroom to be coming. And the moment you hear his voice, you rejoice greatly because it's about him. It's not about you. We get in our culture, in our area, that it's about me. I deserve this. I'm at a certain age where I should be able to have these things, or I put in my hours and my time. And John is saying, yeah, I've done that. I should have that. But you know what? I'm not him. Therefore, the joy is mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. John is saying right there, he could have had the popularity. He could have been running the circuit and the stadiums and being this big celebrity pastor. And instead, he withholds that and says, it's not about me. And as I become great and I've prepared the people and prepared their hearts for the coming Messiah, it's no longer about me anymore. It is about him. He must increase. I must decrease. Some of you who are gray, I'll call gray hairs, and I say senior saints, and I say that very lovingly, you're not old. You're a senior, and you're wise. And that's why it says in Scripture that you're supposed to train up the young ones like myself, because we don't have the life experience yet. You're welcome. <laughs> My dad's in this phase. You heard him a few weeks ago. He's retired. He's working two jobs now. Don't worry, he works with me sometimes, so we keep him busy. But sometimes it can be very fearful that as you get to a certain age and as you look at retirement, and Ms. Jill says her schedule is predictable. It's very not. I've tried. It's very unpredictable. And she travels everywhere. But you can sometimes think, I'm going to be replaced. I'm going to retire. I'm going to go out to pasture, and that's it. And it can be very daunting and be very scary and be very much, what is the next phase of life? I don't know. There's people that, you know, I had all this prestige and this things, and now I don't. I don't know what to do. It's very scary. And John kind of answers, what's the secret to greatness? It's not about you. The secret to greatness can only be achieved when we understand our purpose is to make Jesus greater and more visible. And so there's sometimes, yeah, where the young bucks rise up and they start to get more and more and you become less and less. And that's a good thing. One of the greatest things for me in ministry is that when I worked with youth and young adults, even in church up in New York and even here, I will come to that. We would work with the teens and get a leadership team together, about 10 students from ninth grade to 12th grade. I didn't do it with junior high. I didn't trust them. But high school, I could trust. And we would work with them, and we would meet after church every other week, and we would have lunch. We would go through a Bible study, and then we would prep youth group. But about two times in the fall and two times in the spring, we would prep, and they ran it. They did the music. They did the message. They led the small groups. They led the games. I showed up. They became greater, and everyone loved it. They had greatest attendance, actually, at youth group when they led. 
not when I led. And it can be intimidating or daunting if you're in a position of authority or significant position, and now someone comes on the scene and people like them. People think they're better than you. And you're like, wait a minute, I've, I deserve this. And what John is saying is what our heart should be, that he must become greater and I must become less, that actually as you've trained up and raised up people, I want them to flourish better than me. When I hired my replacement in youth ministry, I said, I don't care. I cared about the foundation laying. I said, but in a few years, I hope they don't nick who. I hope they can say, oh, Matt's youth group is the greatest. Matt Harrison is awesome. Matt this, Matt that. That's a win. He becomes greater in different areas because that's the significance. That's the trick. And nothing reveals our character more than when ours gets attacked, character, or when we need to decrease so someone else can get the limelight, so someone else grows up and matures. And sometimes that's hard to see, but John was able to recognize this. And he spit it back to his disciples saying, he must increase, I must decrease. If you want to go to him, go ahead. But it's not about me. It's always about him. And so then it goes on to the next chapter in chapter four. Now, when Jesus learned that because his disciples are baptizing, get that nugget in the back of your head, Jesus, then they leave, excuse me, and they left Judea and departed again for Galilee. They're going north. They left the wilderness. Jesus is sick of the Pharisees. They're coming. They're spying. They're just nosy. They just want to know what's going on, and they kind of want control. They are the religious elite. They are trying to steer the, the culture of the area back to what they see as the rules and the laws. And Jesus has come on the scene showing signs, and they're not sure. They didn't, he didn't go to their school. They don't know who he is. They don't know what's going on exactly. They want in. They want to be in the know. And Jesus knows their hearts, knows their designs, and so he leaves. He says, I'm done. I'm going to Galilee. I'm going back home. So he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And, had, he had, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was. And if you want to highlight, circle that, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, there's another indication that Jesus, though fully God, is also fully man. He's tired. Like you and I, when we run hard and we work hard, we're tired. Wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour just means it's about noon. So 12 o'clock, it's in the middle of the desert. It's going to be hot. Most of us, you read that and you think, okay, he's going to Galilee. He goes through Samaria. It's awesome. He stops at the city, Sakar. Great. John is writing. John is a Jew. John thinks as his audience, you have some understanding about what he said when he said Samaria and when he says Sakar. There's this undercurrent tone of the politics and the culture of the day. Samaria is not the place you go to, because if you're a Jew, you go around Samaria. Why is that? Because we love history, so I'm going to give you a little history lesson real fast, and then we'll come back. But the rabbit trail is this. Israel was one nation back in the Old Testament. And then partway through, you read that they had a civil war, and you had the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom lasted for a period of time, and then the Assyrians came in and took them away. They whacked them and departed them. Then they infiltrated other Assyrians from their kingdom, which is northern Turkey going into the northern part of Iraq, that stretch of land. They imported the Assyrians. They imported the non-Jews to the area. And then when the deportation period of time was done, the Jews came back. They intermarried with the Assyrians and the other people. God said, don't do that. Don't marry into non-Jewish people that aren't converted. Why? Because they will take you away from the one true God. It's the same way when we say Christians, why do you marry, if you're a Christian, you stay marry another Christian? 
Because if you don't marry another Christian, that person has a different set of faiths and beliefs. And now you as a Christian are married to this other set of beliefs, and then your kids are going to be trying to mix the two together, and you're not cohesive, and all of a sudden you get this jumbled cult-like disenfranchised religion, not true faith. And so the northern kingdom is this interbred, intermixed group of half-Jews, as the Judean people would say. The southern kingdom, Judah, didn't last. They last a little longer than the northern kingdom. They got taken away to captivity called Babylon. The difference being they did not intermarry. They stuck Jew with Jew and stayed that way all through captivity, made their way back into the land, and so they saw themselves as pure blood. Where the northern kingdom, the, Assyria, the Assyrians, were half-bloods, which means they had not the true faith. What was also known is that the Old Testament the Jews had in the southern part, and they believed it, the Samaritans mix-matched some of that and made different rules, different rags, and so they had pieces of truth, but not full truth. So you have this group that is dirty. So you got racism right at play, Jews and these Samaritans. And in order to go through Galilee, the shortest, quickest route is through Samaria, through Sakar, which is the capital, and every good Jew does not go through Samaria. You might get dirty. You might touch something. It's not worth your time. So I'll waste my time to go around them to not even see them, touch them, you really have to hate someone to do that for the record. You really have to not like someone to avoid them to that degree that you extend your trip, travel time, to go around them so you don't have to interact, period. What does Jesus do? What is John saying he does is that he goes to Galilee and he goes the quickest route, which he goes through Samaria because there's someone that Jesus needs to meet. Just like he's met with Nicodemus, he's got someone here who he has to meet. And you have this issue these pagans, this mixed group of people that are in this town that don't like the Jews, the Jews don't like them. It's why when you hear the, the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, why that is such an affront to most Jews when they heard that because it's not the priest or the Levite that does the good deed that Jesus says, imitate. It's the Samaritan. Who? Why would you imitate them? They don't have it right. They don't have the right stuff. So Jesus comes through. He sits down. He's tired and he's weary. It's noon. You didn't travel by bus or by plane or by car. You traveled by foot. So you're dirty. You're probably kicked up the dust. It's the desert. Did I tell you that already? It's hot, dusty. You're weary. You're traveled. The disciples, it says, they come into the town. He sits down. The disciples go past, and they go looking for food. They're hungry. Their bellies are rumbling. They're deciding, let's go get food. Jesus is worn out enough that he sits down. Then you read verse 7. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Again, in our culture, what's the big deal? I don't understand. Well, one commentator writes this about how the view of women was in this culture. It's patriarchal, okay, which means it's male-dominated. Females aren't that much important, right? One commentator says, the rabbinical comment at this period of time, a man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even his sister or his daughter, on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman on account of what men may say. You kind of get the hint that Jesus asked a woman, can I have a drink? Culturally, that's a no-no. Rabbis don't do this. You don't even talk to your wife in public. God forbid you talk to a stranger and a woman and a Samaritan at that. And so you can imagine her kind of startlement at this. In verse 8, it continues, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She gets it. 
she realizes something. I, who are you to ask me for a drink? I'm a woman. I know my place in this culture, in this society. And I'm from Samaria. You're a Jew. You, we don't interact. And the likelihood, if you think about it, his disciples went into the town. She's coming out of the town with her bucket. They probably passed somewhere along the way, potentially. They ignored her. Jesus sees her. Jesus asks the question. He's tired. He's weary. I'm hot and sweaty. I'm dirty. I'm dusty. Need a drink. The reality is broken. Because why is she there at noon? You're not there in the middle of the heat of the day at noon. You come in the morning or you come in the evening. You don't come in the middle of the day. You come in the middle of the day if you're avoiding people. You don't want to be talked to. You want to interact with anybody. Or if you're ostracized and put out. One commentator would also write that, you know, the young men of the city, if you were single, you would go to the well in the morning because that's where the women were, and you might find yourself a wife. Now, also the promiscuous as well would also be there to catch your eye. But she's there at noon. You came in the morning for water or you came in the evening for water. But she didn't come at noon, and here she is by herself alone, a woman at the well, and Jesus sits and talks. How is it that you, a Jew, would want this? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now that phrase, if you were to highlight living water, what he's saying is it's water. So any type of spring, any type of well would be considered living water, bubble up to the surface. It was, that was called living water. So he's using some metaphors here. He's saying, if you knew who I was, who's asking you for a drink, you would say, can I have some living water? And so she's going to take it literally and ask him that question. She goes, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's a little sharp, probably. You can imagine she's a little on edge, curious. Here is someone who doesn't avoid her, but has seen her. She recognizes you're a Jew. He interacts. That there's something different about what he's doing. The rest of the town people have ignored her. His disciples probably walked past her and bumped her off the road because that's what you did. See you later. You walk around me. We don't walk around you. She is saying, "Where you don't have anything. What are you talking about living water? You don't have a jug. I can't pour your jug. You're asking me for me to lower my jug and to give you a drink from my water jug. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Which goes back to the history. Abraham was the first patriarch. From Abraham, he has a son Isaac. From Isaac, he has a son Jacob. Jacob, this is his well that he dug hundreds of years ago. It's still used at this woman's time. She's saying, are you greater than him? Because he's the father of our nation. He was promised by God. He has an in. He is this high guy. He gave us this well we drink from, and as did his sons and his livestock. In verse 13, he says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me the water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come back here to draw water. Jesus' whole point is this. Drinking and thirst are common pictures of God's supply and man's spiritual need. Drinking is an action, but an action of receiving like faith. It does something but it is not merit earning in itself. Someone might object, I drank what Jesus offers and I feel thirsty and empty. And the answer is simple, drink again. It isn't a one sip of Jesus that satisfies forever, but continual connection with him. And Jesus is saying, look, if you sip this water that I have, if you were born again, and hint, then you wouldn't be thirsty. And she's thinking, literally, where's the well that I can go that I can avoid these people? 
Because the truth of the matter is, it's a small town. Like Carroll County is a small county, yes. But we have cars and you can avoid people for a point. To an extent, you can do that. More than likely, you're going to bump into somebody or someone's going to know something. But this is a small town where everyone knows everyone's business. You walked every place you went or you rode a donkey. You didn't go far. You stayed. We don't know this woman's history yet. We don't know her past yet. We don't know anything about her other than she's at the well at noon. We can infer a few things about her that she's not supposed to be there at noon, but she is. She's avoiding something. And the person that takes notice of her is Jesus, not his disciples. And he sees her and he hears her and he interacts with her respectfully. Not woman, get me something to drink or just lower it down. Hello. He's saying kindly, hey, give me a drink. I'm tired. I'm weary. It's a sign of hospitality. And she looks at him to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You actually notice me, a nobody from a know-nothing town, backwater, and you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. I'm a female on top of that. And you see me. And Jesus answers her and entertains her and speaks to her as if she is a person that she has dignity and she interacts. Give me this water. She wants a taste. She wants to see it. And the truth is, we're all broken. But if I'm not healed at a soul level, then I'm not going to be right in my lifestyle, which comes back to the day that we live in and the culture that we are in. We tend to want people to act a certain way before we can interact with them. We want people to behave a certain way. And church ought to be different. Church is much more about do you belong because if you feel like you belong or you're welcomed into the body of believers, then you start to believe the crazy thing that Jesus did in life and what he demonstrated. He is not just a good servant. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good prophet. No, he's king eternal. He's God's son, which is hard to comprehend for people. And people have had past experiences and bad experiences. And they know everything church is against. I'm telling you, all you got to do is Google. What's the church? And people know. And the reality is if we don't realize that if I'm not healed on a soul level, my lifestyle will not reflect that. And the truth comes back to them as we put these standards on people and the world around us that they should act. I can't believe they did X, whatever that is. I can't believe they made that decision. I can't believe they lived that life. Don't they know that's going to? No, they don't. No, they don't. Because our deepest need is a sin issue and we need a savior. And until we're saved, until God comes in, you're not gonna act different. Because what is in here is going to come out. You can put on a facade for only so long, but the truth is until your soul is healed, your lifestyle is not going to change. And we're going to see that in just a minute because we're sometimes scared of truth. And you don't need to be afraid of the truth. It's how you deal with truth. It's how you present the truth. And so many of us want to get in an argument. And my issue is this. If you get into an argument, you've lost. Because an argument only is who's right and who's wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. There's an old movie, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm smart, you're dumb, go to your room. And it's like, that's what people think. It's why I, I wait as long as I can when I interact with someone outside of church before they find out what I do. Because then they, they change their language, they, uh, and it's like, no, if you just wait, or they get defensive and they leave, you're, you're one of them. How do we win friends and influence people? That's what we want. That's what Jesus did at every point. It wasn't about the rules this, rules that. He'd walked through grace and he showed the gray that there was much freedom. And the whole point of the law, which is excellent, the old is good, is it's about the heart. And that's what the Pharisees kept missing over and over and over is we put these rules. If we just do the rules, we can work our way to heaven. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. You're never going to be good enough. 
And if I'm not healed at the soul level, I'm not going to be right in my lifestyle, which pulls on to the next point, which is this whole conversation reaching its crescendo. It's building, it's bubbling up like living water, bubbling up to the surface. Jesus said to her, which he recognizes, go call your husband and come here. He recognized at this point, culturally, it's becoming a little awkward because I'm having a conversation with a woman. I'm at the well. Everyone can see, all right, culturally, now let's bring your husband into this because now we're going deep. Now we're getting into some nitty-gritty deep stuff conversation, and it's just more appropriate if your husband's here. The woman's response, and this is where truth comes into play. What did he do first? He saw her and he hurt her. He interacted with her with dignity and respect. He knew who she was, knows her heart. Jesus said to her, and the woman answered him, I have no husband. Now you can read ahead if you want it, but if you just pause for a minute, she doesn't answer full tilt. We, who would? And someone asked a question or a hard question. We don't know if we can trust them. We don't know. So he, she kind of dodges, answers it, but I'm not going to tell you the whole truth. I'm not going to tell you my life story, but I am going to be what she is, is honest and truthful. And when she's honest and truthful, Jesus then decides to go for the jugular. He's going in for the kill shot. Because this is how we confront sin and shame. And this is where most in the church say, well, we, we have this, we have that, and let's just stand on the truth. And da, da. Did you see how Jesus did this first? As he saw them, he cared for them, and then he's not afraid to go there. And he goes to her, where's your husband? She goes, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now picture for just a minute, if this was in a movie and they knew that in this interaction, what do you think is the, her response? Her response is potentially to slap him, to get defensive, to justify all of it. That's what goes to my head that Jesus says, hey, go bring your husband. Let's have a further conversation. Let's get to the heart of the matter. She says, well, I have no husband. He says, you're right. You've had five. Now in our culture, even today, that's rare to have five husbands. She's had five, and Jesus pretty much says, you're, in, you're with another guy right now. Couldn't mean the guy's married. She's having an affair. We don't know. We also don't know her past. Was she abused when she was younger? Where's dad in all this? Because each, at each divorce, if there was a divorce, if there was a death, you would go back to your dad. Where is dad? I don't know. What's her trauma background? Why is she searching for love in all the wrong places? It's what she knows. She's in Samaria. So she's had bits and pieces of truth mixed in with the other pagan religion and has something, a smorgasbord of something. And yet Jesus has come on the scene, this Jew who you're not supposed to associate with, has treated her well, respected, sees her, hears her, talks to her, communicates, and he just calls out the sin. And you got to be thinking, she's going to smack him. She's going to run away. And so many of us are afraid of this. What just happened? We don't agree with someone. We don't like their lifestyle. But if we say we're wrong, then we're a bigot or we're wrong, or you hate everybody. It's like, that's not it. And we're afraid to speak truth, but it's how you do it. It's building the rapport. It's building the relationship to say, yeah, I don't agree with you, and that's okay. Jesus calls out the truth. He just calls it what it is. You're right. You don't have. You've had five, and clearly you don't have. You're sleeping with another guy. She doesn't want to be homeless more than likely either, because if you don't have a man in the society, you're out on the streets. You would go back home, and where is dad? Where is her family? The woman said to him, her response, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. That's a pretty, okay, yes, you're right. That's a pretty quick-witted comment of, I perceive you know a lot more than who you're saying you are. But she didn't run. When you speak truth in love, many times 
You won't run from that. People want to hear. It's how you treat them. Again, that's why it's not an argument. I don't have to agree with everything, but I can call you out on some things. If you let me in, if you open up, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go after the hard crime. Why? Because they're be- we're better for it. Confronting our sin and our shame, quick wit. One pastor said to the, about this woman, she, she had great passion, looking for love in all the wrong, patient, all in the wrong places. Again, what's her backstory? But something has intrigued her about Jesus in such a way that he calls her on her sin, and yet he's still there. And he noticed he never says once, you evil, filthy woman. He never said that. He just said, you're right. You've had five and you're with another guy right now. So she switches the gears to more of a worship question, to more of a faith question, to more of her heart and her longing question, of her deep-seated, there's something more and I've been looking for it and I haven't found it. So she goes there. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where your people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will worship the Father. Your worship, what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And Jesus is saying right here to her, look, you're right. You say you worship here because you've, you've manipulated the population. It's a power issue. It's a control issue. Uh, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. That's not the true place. Here's where Jacob's well is. Here's where we can worship. The Jews, though, have the Old Testament. They didn't deter. They didn't stray. And so they worship what they know as truth. And Jesus is saying, look, there's a place coming where it doesn't matter where. There's a time coming where it isn't in Jerusalem only. It's going to be all over the place. It's not just here or there. It's going to be wherever But he clarifies this. But the hour is coming and and is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That key, if you want to highlight that spirit and truth. Jesus doesn't tell her anything yet of how to be saved. He doesn't go there. He spoke truth to her. This is where you're at in life. I see this. I hear you and I see you and I value you. And then he goes in to further it. The hour is coming where you won't worship here. I want spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not just a spiritual. It's a truth. It's a realization of what is truth. Who am I? And God knowing my deepest, darkest secrets, he doesn't want you to just have a spiritual moment. Go after all of you, all of us. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And here's where the mic drop. Jesus doesn't do this often. It's very rare that he says what he just says. And yet, look who he chooses to do it to. To a woman of Samaria. And he says to her, right here, Jesus said, I who speak am he. And if you're her, all of a sudden the light bulbs click. He called me out of my sin and shame. I'm broken, and Jesus realizes that. God knows you need a heart transformation. He calls you on your truth of the issue in your life, the real issue, not just, well, I think it's this, and I'm not going to give you whole truth. And he calls out. And she doesn't run. She leans in and says, okay, now, wait, what do you have? You know this about me, yet you're still willing to associate with me. You know I'm more of a harlot, and yet you as a rabbi are talking. There's this faith component that I've been wrestling with. Is it there or is it here? Jesus says it's neither here nor there. You worship what you don't know because you've hodgepodge it together. We know, and so we worship this way, but there's a time coming where it's about the heart. Well, I know there's a Messiah. He's coming, and Jesus says, I'm he. And she's just got to be this dumbfounded look on her face like, are you kidding? You've arrived? 
And it's at that moment, which thank you, thank you, disciples, you always play a key part. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, her key component that she, all, she came to draw water. She left it. She leaves it behind. So she, you can picture the disciples, Jesus is sitting there talking. The woman hears this. The disciples come in and start scratching their heads. Why are you talking with a woman? What is going on? And she's just looking at them to looking at him to looking at them to looking at him. And she turns around and she does something. She becomes something what I would call a grace dispenser. So the woman left her water jar, went away into the town, said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. She becomes a grace dispenser. And she gives this whole point that Jesus so impressed this woman that she was compelled to tell the story to their city that they should come to meet Jesus. Jesus impressed her and attracted her even though he confronted her with her sin. In the midst of confronting her sin and her shame, she met Jesus and she realized something. He is it. And she goes running into the town to become this grace dispenser and calls all the people back to say, hey, you got to see this. You got to see this guy. And then there's this kind of like sidebar, and we got to be real quick through this part, is that his disciples say, well, here's some food. Jesus, go ahead and eat. You're tired. You're weary. You should eat. He say, no, I got food to eat. And they're like, did someone buy a hot dog for him somewhere? Did that woman give him some food? And he's like, dude, you're not getting it again. Foot and mouth, disciples. Come on. He goes, when I'm doing the Father's will, that sustains me. And it's not like he doesn't need food. He does. But there's times where we get so weary and worn down and bogged down that we miss what's right in front of our faces. The disciples probably biffed it, walking right past her, didn't show any care or compassion. And Jesus sees her, recognizes her, calls her, sends her into the town. This woman who's been ostracized and pushed out goes into her town to tell everyone and Jesus goes on to further, the real quick highlight is this, is that he goes, the harvest is plenty, the workers are few. That's the quickest summary I can give. You're missing. You think you can wait. And right now around us, there are so many people longing for truth and longing for what does the scripture say and longing to see it actually authentically, genuinely lived out. And when that happens, people start to get curious about it and say, what's going on? Why is that happening? Why are people like that? And Jesus is saying, you're missing it. It's right in front of your faces, disciples. And for us, it's right in front of our people are right there. In verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This woman who was ostracized, she's no longer ashamed. She's dealt with her past, and now she uses her story of her past to share the good news. And how many of us get Satan in our head saying, but you did this when you were there, if they really knew who you were? And the truth is, you have to determine whose lie are you going to believe, what Satan says about you or what God says about you. She's no longer ashamed because God has changed her story and she uses it to such effectiveness that the people around her are saying, who's this woman who was the talk of the town in all the wrong places and all the wrong ways is now all of a sudden the one bringing everyone to Jesus and saying, you got to talk to him. This story, and everyone knows her story. Now she's open about it. Everyone knows about it, doesn't talk about it. Now she's not just open about it. She's talking about it and saying, it's, there's change. Something has happened. You got to see him. And so they believe on account of her. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves and we know that it is indeed the savior of the world. 
It's that whole point that she takes her story, her sin, her shame, and God redeems it. God restores her. 1 John 1, 9 says, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We get the forgiveness part. One pastor said, we forget the freedom part. You've been forgiven from your past. I don't know what's in all of your past. I don't know what you're fighting against and what is in your head that when you go to do what God, if they know this or they, you have immense freedom because you've unforgiven. And God says, well, I've forgiven you and I'm gonna cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I'm gonna mold you and shape you and you can take your story and let it be a detriment and not use it or say, yeah, I'm a sinner, I'm broken. But my soul has found healing and I've been reborn because of what Jesus has done. And look at me today. I don't got it all figured out. Nick Dunn doesn't have it all figured out. I still screw up. My wife will tell you that. But I don't live under that fear anymore because Jesus has set me free. And so I can use my story, the hurt, the pain, and all. But sometimes it's a hard deal to go face the past. Some of you, that might be your next step is to lean into the past. And others of us, it's to Stop carrying that baggage. I want to close here before we go into communion. If you ever read a book, one of my favorites called Knowing God by Packer, he writes this, Knowing God is a matter of grace. It is a relationship in which the initiative throughout is with God, as it must be, since God is so completely above us and we have so completely forfeited all claim on his favor by our sins. We don't make friends with God. God makes friends with us, bringing us to know him by making his love known to us. Paul expresses this thought of priority of grace in our knowledge of God when he writes to the Galatians. So what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but it's the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me, that I am graven on the palm of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment where his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is huge knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, sort of comfort that energizes, and knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. This is there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about who I am, I am so, as I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my human, fellow humans do not see, and he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend, desires to be my friend, and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new creation in Christ. You are not defined by your past. You may have to deal with the past, yes, but you can use your story just as this woman did. And John gives a whole chapter to this woman and her testimony, what God is about and who he's seeking. He wants the heart. Why did he stop in Samaria and Sikar to see this woman? That's his appointment. The woman who had five husbands and was sleeping with a man who wasn't his, hers. Jesus says, that's who I want. Your heart's there. Let me share the truth. And she recognizes it and she believes. And one day we're gonna see her in heaven. And many more come because of 
her telling her story. You don't have to have all the answers. She didn't. She, all she did was go into town and say, there's a man who did X, Y, and Z, told me everything about my life, told me all about this. You've got to see him. It's taking your story and sharing it. It's taking your story and saying, God has redeemed this. I was broken, but he's making me whole.